loosely supposed by some that Israel's feast represents the course of time. This earth's days from creation down to the final end. The lamb slain at Passover commences it. And the eighth day of the happy feast of tabernacles is its close. While a Sabbath, the rest, God's rest in himself, and his creatures rest around him, both precedes and follows this course of time. in Scotland, we were able to visit many historic Christian sites, including the grave of the Scottish minister and theologian Andrew Bonar, who lived in Scotland from 1810 to 1892. He was known as a great supporter for a future nation of Israel. Bonar said the following concerning the seven feasts of the Lord, often called the feasts of Israel. Now, I'm not going to give you the Scottish accent, which you've already heard in the introduction. But he did say, It is beautifully supposed by some that Israel's feasts represent the course of time, this earth's day, from creation down to the final end. The lamb slain at Passover commences it, and the eighth day of the happy Feast of Tabernacles is its close, while the Sabbath, the rest, God's rest in himself and his creatures rest around him both precedes and follows this course of time. In these short sentences, Bonar summarizes the range of the feasts in history. Notice their significance spans from Genesis to Revelation. The ending point, the book of Revelation, may or may not even surprise you. But perhaps the idea that the key concept of the feast is introduced in Genesis chapter 1 may be new to you. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 14, we see this introduction of the feast. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, at first glance, the word feast doesn't seem to be connected with or even appear in this verse. Actually, it's there in the English word seasons, which is a translation of the Hebrew word moed. That word is translated feast in many other passages in our Bible. Now, in this verse, God tells us his purposes for dividing the light from darkness by using the sun and the moon. We are told they are for signs, seasons, days, and years. Now, most people read this and they say, okay, they're for night and day. It's, it's a means of keeping track of time. But there's much more in this verse than a first reading would seem to indicate. Look at that very first purpose for the sun and the moon. They are for signs. 
Now, according to the late Robert Alden, professor of Old Testament and word expert on Hebrew words, this word signs is used as an indicator of God's extraordinary events and judgments in history. In other words, when these exceptional events occur, we're going to keep track of them with the moon and sun, and they will also somehow trigger or signal to us that these are special events by God. A good example of this is found in Joel the prophet's writings in chapter 2 and verse 31 where he tells us, The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Matthew, speaking of the same period of time, indicates this sign will occur immediately after the tribulation of those days. In Matthew 24, verse 29, Jeremiah, also speaking of the same time period in history, says, Be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed in them. He wants to assure believers not to be worried when you see the signs. He said that in chapter 10, verse 2. Almost all of the 80 uses of this word signs speak of a miraculous event and judgment by God. Two other examples are the judgments upon Egypt and the movement of the sun upon the steps as a message to Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 9. Therefore, recognizing these signs are indicators of significant events and judgments by God in history, we need to also recognize the next word or purpose in Genesis 1, verse 14. That is, seasons. As already stated, this is the Hebrew word moed that is translated here as seasons. In other verses, it's translated as feast, assembly, appointed time, and similar variations on these terms. Now in Leviticus 23, the major chapter for feasts, God designates seven appointed times, seasons, or appointments, and we call them the Feast of the Lord. These are significant times for God's people of Israel to gather together as a nation to meet with their God. These special national events were to be a blessing for Israel, but would also trigger or represent significant events in history that should be recorded and noted, and the times would be indicated through the sun and moon, indicating them to us. Now, before we can look at these specific seven feasts, however, we first have to answer a question. That question is, why does God attach so much importance to these seven appointed feasts? Why does God attach so much importance to these seven feasts? Aren't they just times of worship? Well, you may not realize it, but the feasts of the Lord are mentioned either directly or indirectly in over three quarters of the books of the Bible. And for instance, in the Gospel of John, John makes reference to them in many 
many of the verses of his gospel, and it is important to understand the feasts in order to truly, truly grasp all that John has written to us. You see, a study of the seven feasts of the Lord not only will add to your appreciation of God's word by enabling you to understand his plan for history more clearly, while helping you to see God's plan for you personally in these days of apostasy and apathy within the churches. In these feasts, God planned seven specific interactions with Israel to illuminate a number of significant truths regarding his dealings with mankind. These seven interactions should be thought of as appointments since God designates a specific time, a specific place, and specifically who is to participate in each event. Only God could use such simple pictures, seven appointments, to teach some of the most profound truths about himself and his plan for history, and his plan for you and me as individuals. Only God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful, could bring these appointments with Israel to fruition. In these appointments, we will discover how the feasts serve to represent God's plan in a threefold manner. First, the seven appointments correspond with seven mountaintop events in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, some have already taken place in past history, but others prefigure future prophetic events. To date, God has fulfilled four of the seven appointments. Therefore, three are still awaiting their fulfillment in the future. Second, the seven feasts help us to understand the spiritual aspects of salvation and its progressive effects upon each individual believer. Israel's interactions with God are used to depict an individual, now this is Jewish or Gentile believers, an individual's spiritual journey, which begins at the point of salvation and will progress throughout his or her life. The seven feasts, therefore, represent seven spiritual truths in a believer's life. Third, the seven appointments serve as seven signposts on the road of time. These landmarks tell us where we are in God's plan for the ages. The seventh appointment will signal the close of history as we know it, as well as the beginning of the new heavens and earth of eternity future. Now, the first appointment, the Feast of Passover, that was fulfilled in Egypt just before Israel's exodus. The last appointment, the Feast of Tabernacles, will have its ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns to Israel. For the Jewish people now, the feasts serve as yearly reminders of God's tender care for his chosen people. For the Christian, the feast pictures where we are as individuals in our Christian walk. Interestingly, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is an appointed time 
for every event in life, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where we read, To everything there is a season. Now that word season is of similar form for the idea of an appointed time. To everything there is an appointed time. A time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. You see, God has a plan for history, and there is an appointed time for events to occur. Similarly, in Leviticus 23, God appoints seven of those appointed times, the Feast of the Lord, for God's people to gather together for very special national events. But before we look at these seven times, however, we also have to answer the question, what does the word feast really mean? When you see the word feast, what picture comes to your mind? Most people think of a time of eating, usually a holiday. Now, I always think of our Thanksgiving feast, since I truly enjoy this holiday. The family comes together and celebrates, and how do we do that? By eating, ha-ha, a large meal of turkey, mashed potatoes, corn, rolls, and of course, pie. Now, this Thanksgiving meal reminds us of God's generous care to us throughout the past year. Unlike the modern, secularized Christmas, with all of its commercialism, Thanksgiving allows us to focus our attention on God, or at least it should. For this reason, Thanksgiving actually shares many similarities with biblical feasts. According to the Bible, feasts are defined as a time to gather the people of Israel together for a spiritual purpose. Now, although Thanksgiving shares many similarities with biblical feasts, it's not a perfect match. You see, some of the feasts described in the Bible don't involve meals or eating of any kind. There's no food present. Furthermore, some feasts are actually very serious, very somber occasions, which may even become quite painful to those participating in them. For this reason of those feasts, I think of them as a dental appointment. You see, every time I go to the dentist, it hurts. Even a simple checkup involves probing and pain. Now, I haven't had a cavity for 60 years, yet when I go for a checkup and they look at my teeth and they say, oh, they're so clean, they're so nice, <laughs> no cavities, they still stick me with that pick on my teeth. It hurts. Therefore, I tend to see this dental appointment as similar to at least one or more of the feasts. You see, a dental appointment always involves a set time. I have to be there on time. A set place for me to go and meet 
with the dentist. In a sense, it's a time to gather between the dentist and my teeth. Now, while I'm being semi-humorous, a dental appointment really is a very serious matter. An important concept emerges from this analogy I've just given you. A feast is a very serious appointment between God and the nation of Israel. If we combine the idea of thanksgiving and a dental appointment, we'll begin to get a better understanding of the nature of biblical feasts. A feast includes always a gathering together of the nation of Israel, a spiritual meeting with God, an appointed day, time, and place specified by God. Sometimes it's a joyful time and sometimes a painful one. As recorded in the scriptures, God commanded Israel to observe seven feasts every year. Some of those feasts do involve food and a time of thanksgiving. These certainly include the Feast of Passover and Tabernacles. The Day of the Atonement, however, is a somber feast accompanied by great fear of those participating in it. And some of the other feasts combine seriousness with joy. In Leviticus 23, God gives basic instructions on how to observe the seven feasts. He also gives an overview or outline of these seven feasts, as well as essential details for each of them. Now, other passages throughout the Bible, they augment our understanding by providing additional information and instructions about the feasts. I was reading a statement by Lehman Strauss that I thought truly, truly summarized the importance of these feasts, not only to the Jewish people, but to we who are Christians and believers in this day. Bible teacher Lehman Strauss said of Leviticus 23, no passage of scripture is more doctrinally and prophetically profound and fraught with more of the weight of God's plan for holy living than the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. Here is an orderly unfolding of the prophetic panorama reserved in clarity for the student, and I note this carefully, for the student who will take the time to study it carefully. Here the student will see the prophetic and practical import unfold in a progressive and harmonious array. Let us now take the time to study Leviticus 23 and gain all that Lehman Strauss suggests is contained in that passage as we study God's plan for holy living as he defines it in the meaning of the word feast in the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 23, God gives us his basic instructions for the seven feasts of the Lord. In verse 2 he says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. 
By addressing the children of Israel in this verse, he tells them that the feasts are holy convocations or holy assemblies for Israel as a nation. We must be very careful when studying our Bible. We must recognize God's intentions and the applications he gives to each passage. Some passages of the Bible include truths which apply uniquely and only to Israel. Other passages include truths which apply uniquely to the church and only the church. And some truths apply to both Israel and the church. It is our job to carefully discern that and to be sure that we are applying a verse to the proper people who are to actually make use of it or apply it in their lives. Now, a biblical feast is clearly for the nation of Israel. By its very origin and nature, involves the spiritual gathering of the nation of Israel. Many students of the Bible have fallen into serious interpretational errors by failing to recognize that the Feast of the Lord focus uniquely upon Israel and not upon the church. Now the church, that's consisting of all true believers in Jesus Christ, beginning with Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to the rapture, never participates directly in the feasts. Despite this, the picture within these feasts are God's ways of teaching us about our spiritual development and how to overcome apathy in our Christian lives. Thus, this uniqueness to Israel is seen in the fact that the seven appointments made by God are always with the nation of Israel, for they require the direct presence of the nation as a whole. Without the nation, the feast cannot occur nor can they be celebrated or observed properly. The unique terminology employed in this verse, Leviticus 23, verse 2, suggests that the command to observe the feast is a royal decree to Israel. The very form of the words used in the command is an indication this is the decree from God to his nation Israel. It's not an optional thing for an Israeli to observe or ignore? The nation, therefore, as a nation, has no choice but to meet with her God at these appointments. Clearly, God attaches great importance to these meetings between himself and his chosen people. Unfortunately, our English Bible hides the full dimension of the word feast by really translating three different Hebrew words into a single word. Now, we know in Greek that often there are several Greek words for our one English word, and we have to carefully discern that. Now, Hebrew is a much simpler language, and usually there's a direct relationship, a Hebrew word, into our English word or into an idea of our English word. This is really a unique situation, for there are three Hebrew words that are translated feast in our Bible. So we carefully need to note these three words. As we have said, in our English Bible, the word feast is actually translated from three different Hebrew words, and it's important to understand each word. 
The first word we will consider is mishteth. This is a generic term for feast. It conveys the idea of a gathering to honor an important person. Usually includes a meal. For example, in Genesis 19, Abraham honors three men, that's two angels and the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, by hastily preparing a meal as the men rest before continuing their journey on to Sodom. Notice the meal was an impromptu affair, since Abraham did not know the men were coming. On this occasion, the meal element was actually of secondary importance, for the primary element lay in Abraham's honoring his guests. Mishteth, or feast, may or may not have a spiritual element, as we see in other contemporary writings of the scripture. Now, since God did give Abraham a number of spiritual instructions on this occasion, we see that it can include a spiritual element, but doesn't have to. Biblically, in the book of Job, we see that Job also observed a mishteth with his sons on each of their birthdays. On each of these occasions, he prepared a birthday meal, according to Job chapter 1, verse 4, and he called the family together in order to honor the person whose birthday it was. In verse 5, it tells us that Job introduced a spiritual emphasis on these joyous occasions because he also offered a sacrifice. But again, you don't have to have the spiritual emphasis to be a mishteth. From mishteth, we see biblically that a feast of this type is a spiritual gathering, either planned or impromptu, and the focus is to honor a specific person. That's really the key to the biblical use of mishteth. It's to honor a chosen person. Since both Job and Abraham lived long before the formal beginning of the nation of Israel and the giving of the law of Leviticus 23, we know that mishteth does not apply exclusively to the seven feasts of the Lord. The second word for feast, hag, both expands and narrows the meaning of mishteth. Of the seven feasts of the Lord, hag is used in reference to only three of the feasts. Hag is used with the term unleavened bread, with the feast of Pentecost, and with the feasts of tabernacles. Interestingly, with regard to these feasts, where they're described as a hag, God commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16 the following law to Israeli males. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he, that's God, shall choose in the feast or hog of unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, we call it Pentecost, and in the feast of tabernacles and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. On these three occasions, God requires the men of Israel to come to Jerusalem to honor him by offering sacrifices. No matter where they lived in the world, all Jewish men were required to return to Jerusalem, that was the place God chose, to worship at these three feasts, three times each and every year. 
This was God's command to them. Furthermore, God indicated that they must gather at the place which he shall choose. They couldn't arbitrarily decide where to honor God. They had to come to the place that God commanded. Years later, God designated Jerusalem as the chosen place of gathering. Now, because the men had to journey to this location, the feast that brought about this gathering became known as the Three Pilgrimage Feasts. Notice that this first pilgrimage feast includes three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits. The second pilgrimage includes only a single feast, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Now, the third pilgrimage, late in the autumn, includes three feasts, trumpets, atonements, and tabernacles. Now, once again, as in Amishtoth, these feasts involve a gathering together for spiritual purposes. But Hag expands the idea of the feast by adding the element of a specific feast, those three, and a unique person to be honored. Here they are to honor God by their attendance at the pilgrimage feasts. Interestingly, when Moses first confronted Pharaoh, we read in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1 that he requested permission to take the Hebrews out into the wilderness to observe a hog, in other words, to observe a pilgrimage feast. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast, a hog, unto me in the wilderness. Now, we notice that Pharaoh refused. God then used ten plagues to bring about the deliverance of the Hebrews, whom he subsequently formed into the nation of Israel. You see, Pharaoh understood the term hog. He understood it was a pilgrimage. It was going to honor somebody. And so we can tell that this word hog actually appeared in the ancient world before the scriptural use. Now God commanded the Hebrews to come to him at the hog and hold a feast unto me, the scriptures tell us. Note also that Pharaoh did not ask Moses, what does this word feast, hog, mean? He merely asked, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus 5.2 Since many ancient writings mentioned feasts to various gods, Pharaoh clearly understood the concept of a hog, and he resented the one that was to be honored by this feast of the Hebrews. Again, from creation to the time just before Israel became a nation, feasts were observed in the ancient world. I believe they were instituted initially by God through instructions given to Adam in the garden, and Satan then corrupted the meanings of the feast or the purposes of the feast or significantly the one honored by the feast. Satan saw to it that it wasn't the true God. Thus, Hag in the Bible narrows the meaning of Mishteth by referring only to feasts decreed by God in their season. There's our word season again, Leviticus 23, verse 4. 
Hag therefore eliminates the impromptu nature of mishtath. Now recall that the word season, biblically speaking, literally means appointed time. God appointed the feasts as national events in much the same way as he appointed the events of Ecclesiastes 3. God not only demands that his people attend the feasts, he also superintends the circumstances surrounding them. For Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it, that men should fear before him. Just as with a dental appointment, Israel must observe the feasts at the appointed date and time. On four of the seven feasts, Israel experienced major national mountaintop historical events in the history of both the nation Israel and really for the world. Only God could prearrange circumstances in such a way. You see, God controls Israel just as he controls the rise and fall of other nations around the world. Remember that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, that great king of Babylon, Daniel said that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he giveth it to whomsoever he will. Daniel 4.25 This passage points out the fact that God controls the circumstances that create world events and uses them for his own purposes. The third Hebrew word for feast, moed, indicates God's total control over the circumstances of the feasts. Moed comes from the word betrothal. In ancient times, the bride and groom's parents prearranged the wedding of their children, while the bride and groom had little to say. Aside from being present at the appointed time, the bride and groom, the future bride and groom, they had few duties. Their parents, on the other hand, worked out the arrangements, set the time and place for the marriage. In a moed now, God plans all the details and shapes historical events in order to bring about each appointment. God plans all the details and he brings out the historical events so he can reveal the feast and its appointment. Reflecting this concept, when we read in the Bible of the tabernacle where the nation of Israel worshipped and they would pack up the tabernacle and it would move with them, they'd reset it up. The tabernacle in the scriptures is literally called in Numbers chapter 10 verse 3, the tent of appointment. For at that tabernacle, Israel met with her God. Moed fully defines a feast as an appointed gathering of God's people to honor God and him only and see him made manifest before them. In other words, this was going to be an experience where they recognized that God was present. Thus, the seven biblical feasts of the Lord are seven unique appointments set by God himself to be honored by his people to meet with his people Israel at designated times and in a specific place for a specific 
purpose in the history of the nation of Israel. Are the feasts of the Lord important? Well, God used three words to enlarge his meaning of our simple use of the word feast. Why? To stress the need to understand what these feasts teach us individually and to the nation of Israel. As we conclude this first session on the Feasts of the Lord, we need to remember the three key applications of the feasts. Each feast primarily relates to the nation of Israel and its mountaintop historical events in its history. But each feast also pictures God's spiritual truths of our spiritual life that begins with salvation and carries on until we are with the Lord for eternity. So it has a personal application to us, we believers who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, each feast acts as a signpost to tell us where we are in God's plan of history. Since four of the feasts have already occurred, historically we can show that, and we'll see that in our sessions that follow, we know that three are yet to come, and therefore we are living in between that gap, if you will. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23, we have an overview of the feasts. Here, God gives the basic instructions for the seven feasts. The seven feasts are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You will notice that some feasts have very little instructions here in Leviticus. Some are one verse, some are two or three verses, and some are lengthy sections in Leviticus 23. Therefore, further instruction is given in other passages. So as we study each feast, we will have to consider the teachings, what we can learn from, and the examples of the other passages of these feast passages in order to fully put together what a feast is. Now, in our time together, we're going to look at the seven definitive or mountaintop moments in Israel's history and how it is connected to their particular feast. From the perspective of the second millennium, we will see that four such mountaintop moments have already occurred, and three are yet to come. This means that in God's plan of history, we are between Pentecost of Acts 2 and the Feast of Trumpets. The time also to observe the feast is quite significant, and you'll want to carefully look at the calendar which we've made available on our website for you to print out and have with you as you study the seven feasts. Now, since God appoints these time relationships between the first feast to the seventh, we know from the Gospel of John that we are in the four months of harvest, for they are white already to harvest. This is the time the church is to proclaim to all people that Jesus Christ can be their Savior. When we consider the times we live in, it's very obvious that we are well near the end of the harvest, the fifth feast 
may well be near. And understanding the feast will show that while they are appointments for Israel, they are equally as important to us as we see a growing apostasy in our churches. And we see many Christians becoming apathetic in their spiritual lives. A study of the feasts can spiritually reinvigorate a believer as we see how God is in control and we are nearing the end of this age. Never forget, Israel will keep these appointments as God brings them about through his control of time and circumstances. Since God has already fulfilled four of the seven appointments, we can feel confident and assured the other three will come to pass. At the same time, a study of the feasts will help us to avoid the mistakes and fallacies that date setters, these people who tell us on a given date this or that's going to happen, that they fall into misinterpretation of biblical events because they misunderstand the feasts. Furthermore, by studying the four fulfilled appointments, we're going to learn much more about our God, his person, and his dealings with us personally, and also his dealings with Israel. Now until our next session, in our study of the Feast of the Lord, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air. 